Hello and welcome to edition number 10 of the Confession Box podcast. I'm here with Michael Kelly, editor of the Irish Catholic newspaper. Michael, we feel a bit foolish, but I might have been a too praiseworthy last week. You're still here. Brandon, I feel a bit, little bit forgotten, but not gone, to be honest. Uh, the last podcast I thought was going to be my last. But look, here we are again. I mean, proof that uh, the unexpected always happens. Once the world is unfolding, once news is happening... We're here. Amen. So we're going to begin tradition with the front page here of this week's edition of the Irish Catholic. We're getting closer to Christmas. I think we can mention it. Last week you had reservations about being uh, Christmas being mentioned. I think maybe you might be different. You might have a different stance. I think we're getting there now. I've had my first turkey and ham dinner Ah. of the season. So I have therefore inaugurated Christmas. Becoming more amenable to the prospect, shall we say. Absolutely. I may even indulge with a glass of mulled wine later. Oh, okay. That's that's indulgent, Michael. Yeah. Um, so it's a special time of year. We're all aware of that. Faith, for, th- for those who practice faith and even for those who don't practice faith. Um, but it's also a period perhaps where a lot of people who don't consistently practice their faith attend masses and events in the church. Um, we're well aware at this stage uh, at the decline in mass attendances all over the country in a post-COVID uh, climate. Um, so what have we got to do to ensure people return to the the church community, Michael, because we must remember that a church is, is for eternity. It's not just for Christmas. Yeah, the key thing you say there, Brandon, is this post-COVID reality because, yeah, there have been trends in a decline in mass attendance in Ireland, really, going back over the last uh, 30 years. But uh, COVID really has been catastrophic for the practice of faith in this country. In many parishes, somewhere between a half and a third of people who were attending mass before COVID haven't come back. A uh, combination of reasons I would expect. Uh, some old Older people certainly are still frightened of COVID. Others got out of the habit of going to Mass. Uh, I might suggest that a few cynics actually realised that uh, when they stopped going to Mass, the sky didn't fall in. So they decided not to go back. But for the variety of reasons that are there, because, you know, one of the reasons why the church teaches that it's obligatory to go to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligations is because the church, you know, 2,000 years reflecting on human nature, understands people very, very well and understands the habitual nature of things. I mean, you know how difficult it is, you know, to uh, go to the gym, to, you know, live right, to eat healthily. And if you stop doing those things, then you get out of the habit very, very quickly. So mass going is habitual. And a lot of people have got out of the habit because of COVID. A lot of other people have got out of the habit just because uh, busy lives, uh, you know, Saturdays were becoming busier and busier. They weren't getting as much done on Saturdays. Now they find themselves going to Tesco on mm. a Sunday morning to do the grocery shopping there. So what a lot of priests are saying to us, Uh, in the paper this week is they really want a concerted effort in their parish to kind of say to people look if you haven't been in a while if you haven't darkened the door of the church in a while uh, why why don't you come back for Christmas come back and be part of our community at Christmas time and what they're saying and I mean this is really synodal because you know sometimes synodal is spoken about in kind of lofty terms as if the essence of synodality you know is a bunch of kind of stuffy academics who no one really listens to sitting around sitting around round tables but the essence of synodality is what these priests are saying is peer ministry people in the parish saying to their friends and neighbours look this is important to us this is how we share our faith this is how we celebrate Christmas time why don't you come to be part of it and as Bishop Michael Ruther is saying that's sometimes got to start in uh, in our own family because you know if we're honest as people of faith there are many people in our own families who don't practice their faith as well or certainly don't practice it with the consistency with which we would like so not in a dogmatic way not in any kind of preaching way but saying to people look this is important to us this is a nice how we mark and celebrate Christmas would you like to be part of that community and here I will give a little bit of an advisory to Catholics who are in the church 
day in day out every sunday of the year wonderful people very very committed mass going people please don't grumble if somebody's sitting on your seat at midnight mass go and sit somewhere yeah. else because yeah. you know what we're delighted that they're there they may not be there every sunday but let's celebrate the fact that they're there uh, on that particular day and you know what if you try to shift them out of the pew because that's where you normally sit we won't see them back next sunday so a little bit of hospitality from those of us who are there every week as well because this is the case around uh, christianity and around virtue isn't it that sometimes we can get so intoxicated about how good we are uh, we actually forget to be good Christians mm. when actually people uh, people come back it's a particular point of attention as well that that whole very possessive kind of seating and de facto seating you know that that uh, for 20-30 years you have this matriarch of the community and that's her seat and we all know it internally in the church but you have this newcomer coming in and they're blissfully unaware and then uh, the glares start to come. You know, I'm I'm a bit kind of uh, mischievous about stuff like that. You know, if I had a sense of that in the community, that's the only PR I would say. <laughs> I know uh, that's very bold. No, it's I love the intransigence. Yeah, it's great. Um, so we're going to move on now to the to the to the second piece here on the uh, the front page here, and it's in relation. Well, it's in the aftermath of a, a recent study that was done by DCU, which outlined the uh, basically the, the religious convictions and the political convictions of journalists across Ireland. Um, so most are aware at this stage of the findings of this study um, and that most journalists are, are admittedly left-leaning in Ireland and uh, 55% express no particular alignment to a specific uh, religion. Uh, you also touch on this in your editorial, Michael. Um, in terms of integrity and, and let's say, uh, balance uh, in the media, uh, why is this significant, Michael, in terms of discourse and the way in which uh, news and, and media are produced in, in Ireland? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, we've said the role of a journalist is to uh, to inform, to challenge and to entertain uh, readers, viewers, listeners. I mean, those have been the the essence of what uh, journalism is uh, is about. And in a certain sense, uh, because journalism, I mean, all news is local in a way. And one of the best forms of journalism is local newspapers. Journalism should reflect the people um i mean and uh, journalists should come from the community journalists should be off the community journalists by and large should have the same values as the community now a caveat there i will say you know we must be very very careful of uh consensus because uh, if we look and sometimes you know we're wonderful as journalists at praising ourselves about how we stand out from crowds and stuff well you know if you go to like nazi germany if you go to uh fascist italy if you go to communist russia there are very few examples of journalists actually Actually, uh, standing up, a lot of journalists very, very quickly started working for the uh, for the regime, and were very, very happy to run along with uh, with that consensus. So one must be very, very careful of, of of that. That the ultimate commitment of journalists is to the truth and to speak truth to power. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche in a way, but they sometimes say that journalism is about uh, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. This research from DCU is the first example that we have from Ireland, because certainly we've seen this in the United states that uh, journalists by and large tend to be way out of step with wider society that's why in the united states for example you know it's an utter shock and some of them had to lie down for days they could only be roused by smelling salts when donald trump was elected president mm. a number of years ago now donald trump in my opinion is a person of very very low character yeah. he's not a person that i would have ever voted for he's not a person that i would support but the fact that so many americans did support him but this was an utter shock to so many of the journalists uh, is really a call to get out from behind your desk Desks are very, very dangerous places from which to uh, from which to view the world. I mean, it's very interesting. Um 
this research shows just when it comes to the issue of religion uh, you know journalists are almost five times more likely to not have a religious affiliation than the general population so what does that lead to Brandon that leads to group think mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so you're in a situation in a newsroom whereby no one in the newsroom goes to church no one in the newsroom knows anyone who goes to church perhaps maybe an eccentric aunt <laughs> one of them maybe had a relation distant relation who was a missionary priest uh, overseas but the connection to religion other than that is very very narrow and very very shallow so what you have then when it comes to something like public mass has been banned during covid you have very little interest in that in the wider media because you know, they themselves are not being affected by it. The press conferences were always concerns about, you know, how many people could go to a pub, when restaurants would be able to reopen, all of those various concerns. But the concerns of people of faith were not really there. So I think this research is a real wake up call to newsrooms, to producers, to editors to say, why don't you have more staff that are more in tune with the people? Because we know newspapers, we know media is in an immense crisis at the at the moment. We know fewer and fewer people are buying newspapers fewer and fewer people are uh, trusting sources of news and one of the things that's interesting is it's a source of anxiety to the journalists in this research from Dublin City University that they're not trusted by the people in the way that previous generations were and yet and yet there seems to be no great concern about the fact that they're considerably out of step with so many people in wider society. So look, I would say to a lot of my journalistic colleagues, as I say to them quite often at social functions, you need to get out a little bit more. Yeah. And in terms of, I suppose, and it's not really a mass proliferation, but there have been a few uh, alternative media sprouting up in Ireland. Well, maybe they've always been there, but now are gaining traction. And obviously there are complaints, maybe they are well-founded or maybe they're unfounded who knows about you know possible agitation there far-right agitation and in my opinion I just think it's a natural result of a lack of balance in the media I personally don't want to hear about Vogue Williams and her and and, and any of her escapades for you know weeks upon weeks upon weeks yeah you know I mean one phrase that really bothers me in the media now and we see it all the time particularly in the Sunday papers X person who I've never heard of opens up about why I I mean I I really don't care what they're opening up about I mean I, I just scrolling through social media this morning again I see a, a, a DJ who I've never heard of I'm mm. sure she's a very nice lady and apparently she's decorated her house for Christmas oh. there's a whole spread of photographs in the paper of her decorated yeah. house for Christmas which you know in some ways is kind of raised to the bottom uh, unfortunately there is some kind of appetite for that but it shouldn't really be in serious newspapers or newspapers that want to be taken very very seriously uh, I mean the consensus in Ireland the group think that's there around media in Ireland is a kind of soft left sort of consensus uh, you know set by NGOs you take for example I mean the issue of surrogacy that's been debated in the media at the moment well I say debated in the media at the moment the only debate is whether the legislation goes far enough yeah. there's no serious <laughs> questions being asked in the media about the appropriateness uh, I think I think there are also a few provisions there to ensure Lynn, Re- Lynn Ruin gets a few more jabs in Michael as well <laughs> well no for sure I mean but nobody wants to ask about you know the appropriateness the morality of uh, wealthy middle class couples from Ireland uh, going to poor countries to effectively rent the womb of a poor vulnerable woman in in, uh, in in a third world country and nobody wants to ask the morality of that and people say oh well you know we're going to allow it if it's altruistic uh, surrogacy well if you're in a very very poor country where the average income is a couple of hundred euro uh, a month and you're offered several thousand euro to bear a child for a wealthy couple in Ireland I mean you don't really have much choice to be altruistic or not so I think I think we need in this country a wider debate around stuff like that but we don't have 
have it. There's a kind of stifling consensus. And I think that's why you're seeing new media emerging. I mean, the internet, uh, social media has really democratized media in a way. You don't need this enormous printing press that costs millions of euro to uh, to send out your news uh, anymore. That has positives and negatives. But uh, undoubtedly, one of the positives is that there's no longer the kind of stifling stranglehold on, on opinion that was once there. I like to say to people in Ireland, because, you know, we think of ourselves now in modern day Ireland as very progressive. And, you know, we shriek when we look back at the past about how kind of awful it was. Mm. I really wonder to what extent we have become uh, much more open-minded. I think we're still a very consensus-driven people. We've just changed who sets the tone. Now, it's no longer the church. It's a different set of archbishops now. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, something to definitely definitely ponder on there. Um, finishing on a rather unusual note, maybe to some, maybe not to others who are in this, this line of work, uh, of maybe exorcisms and demonology. Who knows? Who knows? Unusual is a very judgmental word, Brandon. I'm, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, maybe it's my ignorance showing. Yeah, I, I'm not a demonologist, nor do I nor do I profess any expertise, but I'm open-minded, Michael, so I'll, I'll try my best. Brandon, this is the confessional box, but I'm not sure it's the space for you to open up about your demons. That may be something you want to consult with your actual father <laughs> confessor with first. Maybe not so much demons, but certainly vices. <laughs> um, so let's say, let, let's start with this, okay? The, the, the dark side, tangible or abstract, Figment or fact? Well, according to one Dublin-based priest and psychologist, a reputable psychologist, he's convinced that there are ways in which we can summon and invite sinister forces into our lives. So what is Father Pat Collins, a very respected member of the clergy, what, what is he saying here, Michael? Yeah, Father Pat is a Vincentian missionary priest, uh, very, very well known because of his work in terms of trying to warn people about... Um, the diabolic really about uh, demonic possession demonic practices now it's very important what you say there about Father Collins being a uh, a psychologist Father Collins ultimately is a man of science and uh, he will tell you himself very very readily that many of the cases that come before him that people say oh my child or my son is uh, possessed by a demon is uh, psychological issues uh, and he will be very very clear about that so Father Collins is not someone who's very very trigger happy about uh, uh, you know, getting out his uh, his bell and crucifix and holy water and the Roman ritual mm. to perform an exorcism as we're used to seeing in the movie theaters. But he is saying, and I mean, this is the consistent Christian tradition that uh, dabbling in witchcraft, magic, sorcery, these kind of things open one up to to darkness because you know we acknowledge uh, we say as Christians as believers that there are dark forces in the world the wonderful Pope Francis I mean uh, who's leading us so fantastically in the church at the moment he never tires of speaking about the uh, the darkness that is there he talks about the discernment of spirits mm. and there's good spirits and yeah. bad spirits and you've always got to be discerning spirits so it surprises a lot of people particularly kind of very liberally minded people who may have a very very naive one dimensional vision of Pope Francis that he speaks so much about demons but you have to remember Pope Francis is ultimately a a very traditional cleric in the uh, Latin American context and he himself has uh, experience in his Jesuit past of uh, discerning spirits so what Father Collins is warning about here is dabbling in the unknown really can open one to to dark forces so he really is warning about that he's warning that uh, people should not uh, people, people should not interfere 
with things that uh, that they know little about and I mean I think this is important in the context whereby maybe things like Harry Potter mm. uh, you know which is a wonderful series of books a wonderful series of movies has given us the impression that uh, there's witchcraft that sorcery things like that uh, that really are they're just harmless fun well the consistent Christian tradition has been that these things are opening people up to uh, to dark forces and uh, best left alone and uh, I mean that very much is the message that Pope Francis is is preaching as well I mean hardly a Wednesday audience in the Vatican passes without him speaking about uh, the Prince of Lies uh, the, the devil of course yeah, it's it's a largely forgotten, I suppose, dimension uh, in in the Catholic tradition. There, uh, exorcisms and even even just general dialogue about uh, about uh, our discourse about demonology and 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 exorcisms and whatnot. Um, well, the church is always careful, you see, not to mm. indulge too much thought mm. about it because you know ultimately, uh, you know, if we think of uh, salvation history, if we think of our theology, I mean, Christ has overcome all evil. Christ mm. has overcome the, uh, the 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 devil mm. already. So uh, it's not something i mean there's a great danger in people particularly people who are scrupulous yeah, overly yeah. obsessing yeah. about this but you touched on something very important there i suppose you know uh, the synod is is, is dictating the, the future trajectory of the church there and you're talking about pope francis mentioning this but it wasn't mentioned it was conspicuously absent in the synod discussions and in in the meeting in in itself so is, is there a difficulty i suppose in reconciling this new reason that we found as catholics you know that the whole scientific uh basis that we have now to our thought and saying well actually no this is something that okay it might be a bit outlandish or strange or foreign to us but it's something important and it's part of our tradition as well so how do we how do we reconcile the two yeah there can be there's one of the uh, one of the dangers of uh, modern religion in general and c.s lewis uh, diagnosed this he himself particularly diagnosed it about uh, coming from his own tradition liberal anglicanism a uh, desire to view religion as something civic a desire to strip religion of the supernatural sense this idea that you know jesus was a good moral teacher like what would jesus say about you know the cop 28 discussion going on in Dubai you know what would Jesus say would he have been happy with the compromise well you see exactly and I mean this is where we we have to bring our reason to uh, to bear in that but the great danger is that if we strip religion of its supernatural nature then it simply becomes just a an ethical framework another way of life I mean something similar to kind of like growing vegetables on your um, on your on your your balcony or your uh, your windowsill as a way to uh, kind of create a better world but we believe as as followers of Jesus, you know, that uh, that God came into the world for the forgiveness of sin, sins. And uh, C.S. Lewis himself, he spoke about that, uh, that great trilemma that Christ presents to us because uh, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Uh, he was asking this of liberal Anglican clergymen in the mid 20th century in Britain. And what C.S. Lewis said, the only uh, options that are available to us is either either Jesus was mad, bad or God. Those are the only options. So the option, he doesn't present the option of being like a nice guy who's a moral teacher. So, uh, and this is this is one thing that Pope Francis is appealing for as well. That's why he's saying that the synod discussion, it has to be a discussion led by the spirit. It has to be a discussion in the spirit and uh, the spirit of truth, because of course, uh, as Christ promised, the uh, spirit of truth will not allow the church to, uh, to, to make errors in matters of uh, faith and morals. And that's something that Pope Francis is having to struggle with when you have some people People, particularly, for example, in the in the German speaking world, um, that you know has not been particularly successful at evangelization, and is, Michael, is drifting away. According to Hollerich, they're very noisy as well. 
Well, indeed, indeed. I mean, and we saw that tension. I mean, we were both in Rome for various parts Mm. of the Synod, Brandon, and we saw that Synod uh, played out there. There is a certain kind of hmm, Germanic temperament, one might say, whereby they were sort of saying to a lot of people, well, look, we know the better way to go here. Uh, Follow us. Whereas Pope Francis is saying, no, 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 we must follow the church with Peter and under Peter. Mm. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, This concludes uh, episode 10. And maybe this is this is the the actual conclusion. Yes, but I'm not making any promises. Yes, true. So do you want to repeat this? The, the, the well-cherished phrase last week? Or? Well, come on. We both know that you're a great fan of uh, Joe Dolan and I hope you made it to some of the last dances before poor old Joe got called home to his heavenly reward. But of course, what they used to say at all the old showband dances was the one and only good night, God bless and safe home.